Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Chaloner and you join us on another sunny day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. Later on in today's show we'll be joined by former Education Secretary and current Leaders' Council Chairman Lord Blunkett. But first and foremost I'm delighted to be joined by Francesca Sternberg, Director at Sterling Quarter Horses. The company is a specialist horse boarding facility based in East Sussex with a US base over in Albury, Texas as well. Francesca, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme today. Hello and thank you very much for inviting me. It's a real pleasure having you join us. And the reason we're here, of course, is to establish your take on leadership. But before we dive into that, considering that this generation of business leaders is probably going through one of the toughest tests of our time, I think it's fair to say, it would be remiss of me not to ask you how it's been trying to navigate the COVID-19 situation over the last few months. Well, it's certainly been an interesting challenge. Of course, working with livestock, life goes on whether we've got a pandemic or not, because in the morning, horses have got to be fed and they've got to be exercised and they've got to be fed again and looked after. So in terms of day-to-day running, we've had to carry on as per normal in that respect. But in order to keep um, all of our staff safe and keep everything running as smoothly as possible, it has been a challenge. And also because we're a competition-based it's very difficult because generally speaking we'd always be getting ready for the next competition and the summer being the high competition period our clients also have not been able to come in for training and it's been it's been really a very unusual spring into summer so far not normal for us at all and just how has it been from a mental health perspective sort of having yourself and the staff and also the clients just adapt to these changes because that lack of social interaction can sort of have a huge impact can't it well it certainly has in terms of training because obviously we haven't been able to have our our riders in for training because that wasn't allowed and some of our riders are high competition level riders some just come because they want to relax they're in high pressure jobs and they cherish their horses that are kept here at our yard and they haven't been able to see them. And that's been extremely tough on a lot of our clients for that very reason. You know, they love these horses and they can't come in, they can't have a riding lesson, they can't train, they can't prepare themselves for their next competition or just enjoy going for a ride around the farm. And I think that's been a very strong line of problems in all sport-related activities that people who are you know, normally involved in sport when they suddenly can't, it just cut off. Um, it, it's really difficult for them from a mental health perspective. I mean, really can be quite quite detrimental. And with there being now an exit strategy from the lockdown in place, are you now seeing a clear route forward in your industry for things to return to some form of normality or is it still a little bit more blurry than that? Certainly in terms of day-to-day life, it's going to become a lot easier. It has become a lot easier. For quite a long period of time, we were not even allowed to ride the horses at all because it was seen as a risk factor. If people had falls, the hospitals couldn't cope with additional um, people coming in from accident-related problems. So for a while, there was absolutely no riding, let alone anything else. Now at least we can go back to riding the horses. Clients can come back to in for lessons there. You have to be very careful. You can't have a group session yet, um, but they have opened up the ability to ride indoors again. 
and the competitions are now starting back up again, but without any spectators, which is, again, mm. a very strange thing when you're in sport. You're used to having people cheering you on, and suddenly it's very, very quiet. Um, but I think in terms of lessening you know, the situation for us, we are now definitely getting back into more normal scenery. But, again, until things open up uh, competitively, it's still a very unknown map ahead of us because a lot of these horses are kept and trained for competition purposes and if there isn't a competition mm. then there's no need to have them but what I have seen which has been really quite extraordinary is the amount of virtual competition that's now available um, which has been a complete new um, market if you like or focus for sport where you can actually take part in a virtual horse show at your own home or on your own at a training facility and submit your video and be judged that way which has been incredibly popular actually and do you think that there will be a shift towards that um, as a result of the lockdown period, even as things begin to resume as normal? Or do you think that things will essentially revert at some point to the way that they were before? Actually, I think that will remain uh, a very popular form of competition in the same way that during this um, whole pandemic, online shopping and grocery delivery has become almost the norm. Um, I think that the virtual competition has become really accepted far, far faster than it would ever have done normally. And as a result, I think it will remain. And would you say that from this experience of managing the pandemic thus far, there's anything positive that you can take from it in the sense that maybe you've learned something from a business leadership perspective? Gosh, that's a jolly hard one. Um, it's hard to find a silver lining in something mm. like this, especially in a sport where everything has been really decimated by it. But I think without a doubt, some of the um, goodwill that's come out of it and the team spirit has been something that we haven't really seen as much in the past. And I think it's definitely created some of that. And when we sort of think about um, the mental health side of um, all of this um, as well, um, we've talked a little bit about just how important it is to safeguard that of uh, those around you. But when you are sort of faced with a crisis of this magnitude and you know that there's going to be a lot of challenges on the horizon, just how do you mentally prepare yourself for that? I think that all you can really do, or all I feel I can do, is to tr try to prepare myself to take our group forward in a very positive way because the mental health side of it is uncharted territory a lot of the time. Mm. And I think you have to be flexible and empathic and try to just take people forward with you in a positive way. Because I think right now we all need positive in our lives. And that goes both for our staff that work for us and the people that we train and also the people that we compete against. Um, it's a very large uh, sort of group of people, as in any sport like tennis or anything else, and we've missed seeing our fellow competitors. And there's a large part of the social life which has been taken away. And I think trying to go forward with this to make people feel good about themselves again, make them feel they can achieve a lot of people lose confidence when they can't do what they're used to doing and suddenly then they have to kickstart back into it. So I think going forward, trying to lead people back onto a firm, solid path, but with confidence is really important. Mm. And 
obviously when you're sort of an employee in any organization i suppose that you have the ability to look up to your sort of directors executives business leaders if you will for a little bit of inspiration as and when you need it but when you're somebody at the top of the tree who's running any kind of business and there's nobody really above you to refer to where is it that you tend to look to for inspiration as and when you need it particularly at a time such as this Gosh, well, it's one of those things you're always looking for somebody more adult than yourself to look forward to, listen to advice. And I try to look at other um, leaders in my field and see what they're doing and see how they're handling things, looking at our governing bodies to see what kind of, you know, ideas they're putting in front of us to take our businesses forward. So I think I think that's a very large part of this, trying to find other people within your own field um, and go with them forward. It is important to recognise that we are never alone in leadership positions, are we? There are always other people to reach out to, to learn from as well. It's important um, in that sense to remember that being in a leadership role isn't necessarily to say we're a finished article, we're constantly learning, we're constantly picking up new skills and new ideas. And thinking about that idea um, there for a moment, Francesca, um, if you had to sort of give some advice to somebody who was about to start their first day in a leadership role within a business based upon the experience you have, what advice would you go about giving them? I think probably um, in a leadership role, you need to try to um, analyse what it is you're trying to achieve. And again, I looked at other businesses similar to my own to see what what they are achieving and decide what do I want to achieve in my leadership role? What do I want to give my employees? What do I want from my business? Because if you don't know, if you don't have goals to reach and ideals to follow, then I think you can be a bit of a, a lost ship, um, a bit rudderless. It's, it's a fantastic thing to be able to be in a leadership role, but I think you need to have goals and know where you're going with it. And having reflected on the uh, the past there, it only serves that we talk about the future just before we do wrap things up on the programme today, because we know that we are going to have to adjust to a new way of living and working over the next 12 to 18 months before we emerge from the pandemic. So over that period of time, what do you think is on the horizon next for you and for Sterling Quarter Horses as a business? And what do you really hope to achieve? Well, I think the main thing is to stay in business. Um, it's been a, It's been a tough time for everybody and uh, money is tight there's a lot of people unemployed and I think going forward for the next 12 to 18 months my criteria is to safeguard my business keep it going keep my employees employed and um, keep my clients and it is we're going into uncharted territory but there's always going to be opportunity I think with any of these terrible situations something always comes out of it as an opportunity so I'll be looking for those opportunities in order to safeguard my business and, you know, take it into the next generation. And let's certainly hope that that will be possible over the course of the year, the next few months. And given, Francesca, just how insightful it's been having you join us on the uh, the programme today to share your experiences and your views on leadership, I actually think it would be great in a few months' time to catch up and have you back on the programme just to see how things are getting on at Sterling Quarter Horses and just assess how the environment around us is shaping up at that point as well. Well, that would be lovely. I'd enjoy that very much. Hopefully, by then, we'd have some really, really good news for you. 
hopefully there will be some positive news on the horizon for sure um, I have to say it's been a real pleasure having you join us on the uh, the programme today and most importantly Francesca until we do hopefully speak again please do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on because we're still not quite sure exactly which way the pandemic is going to play out so let's keep our fingers crossed that it's all going to be positive from here Thank you so much. The same for you. And yes, I know we're not out of the woods yet, but hopefully we're galloping towards them. Certainly so. And I reiterate that message to all of those listening in today as well. Do please continue to be sensible with the lifting of restrictions and look after yourselves and others. It does make a real, real difference in saving lives. Um, I was speaking today to Francesca Sternberg, director at Sterling Quarter Horses in East Sussex. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Leaders Council Chairman Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords, but made a name for himself as a prominent former Labour MP and Secretary of State, holding a number of senior positions in the Cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. And he did all of that despite being blind from birth. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August of 2015. And I hope that you enjoy listening to the interview just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett himself. All of that is, of course, coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises can't benefit from the business rate waiver. Uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate, Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, 
both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level, the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms 
about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary 
often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. 
you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Um, These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, Mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food, a lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of... Thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged? I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by 
COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently, let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. 
Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission Uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has 
Mr. Keir Starmer set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, the thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. 
Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.